Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression, and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds, one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of the Engendered Podcast, our guest is Jen Senko, an award-winning documentary filmmaker whose documentaries focus on sociopolitical themes with the intent of inspiring discussion and fomenting change. Most notably, The Brainwashing of My Dad, which tracks the disturbing rise of right-wing media and its effect on her father. We speak with Jen today about her films, her activism, disinformation tactics used by conservative media outlets, and why and how a free press and educated populace is an essential component of a functioning democracy. Welcome, Jen. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Thanks for having me, Jerry. I'm happy to be here. I've been a fan of your film, The Brainwashing of My Dad, for many, many years, and it was relevant when it first came out. Was it 2012 or? Uh, 2016. 2016. Okay. But even more now, of course. And I have to tell you, still been a struggle to get people to watch it. I don't know why, but I really want to start with what has been the reception of brainwashing um, when it first came out? What was the reception in terms of the distribution across the country? And then subsequently, with all of the uh, spikes in disinformation, I would think that there's been a resurgence in an interest in the film? Well, I have to be honest. I think that there was a lot of fear around right-wing media. And, you know, Netflix didn't even want to take the movie. I was working with an executive producer who lived next door to Netflix, somebody from Netflix, and they wouldn't even tell her why. Maybe that sounds a little conspiracy-like, but All of us were kind of suspicious about that. I know that there were, I had some press, and then some of the bigger people, like Brian Stelter was supposed to interview me and then cancel. Uh, Somebody else on CNN was CNN. I think Jake Tapper was supposed to interview me. I think, if I remember correctly, that didn't happen. But... What did happen is people, regular people, loved the film. And um, as you can see in the film, I had so many reactions from people who related to it. I mean, I still get letters every day that this happened to my mom, this happened to my dad, this happened to my husband, you know, um, my mother, whatever. But unfortunately, we didn't have a lot of theatrical distribution. We got an aggregator, which means that they don't provide uh, uh, publicity or anything like that, but they provide, they get the film on platforms. So, you know, all the streaming platforms. So we have the film on iTunes, YouTube, Amazon, all of that. So that was good. But you also have to have a lot of money. Like if you think, well, I need 400,000 to make a film. Well, you better ask for 600,000 because half that budget has to be publicity. So this was like shoestring, shoestring. And it's, it's so funny, this is an aside, but people have accused me 
righties have accused me of having George Soros fund the film. <laughs> it's like, if he funded the film, let me tell you, it would look a lot better. You know, it, <laughs> I would have done some things, you know, a little bit hmm, snazzier. <laughs> um, so in terms of the original idea, I know you had a Kickstarter campaign, but was it something that you were thinking about already in terms of right-wing media in general, and then your personal experience with your dad came into play and became more relevant, and then you decided, okay, I needed to make this story. How did that process happen in terms of the backstory? No, I was completely motivated to make this film, basically because of my father and what I observed. And I felt like I was on the Titanic before it hit the iceberg, telling people, this is what's happening. And nobody would listen to me. So I had made two other films previously, both award-winning, just independent films. And I said to myself, I'm ready to make this. One of the things that I think made me even more aware that there was this devious thing happening was not just that my dad's personality was changing, you know, when he listened to Rush Limbaugh and he became angry and argumentative and obsessed and um, fanatical was all the emails that I used to get. So I know that that taps into one of your other questions. This is so pervasive and multi-layered, but a lot of the emails that he would just send to us all the time, like whether I was at work or not, they were all aiming at hate Democrats, Democrats and liberals. It was always bashing Democrats and liberals and just saying the most god-awful things. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm a Democrat. That, that's true. I don't hate Christmas. That's not true. I mean, it was so scary and it became so obvious that there was some strategy to this. And I told my ex-boyfriend, who's now my very, very good friend, I said, I see the entire movie in front of me. I see it from beginning to end and I have to make it. And I remember asking a friend who was an older, a woman older than me, who was a filmmaker, you know, the real, the real deal from long ago. How do I make money while I'm making this film? And she just looked at me simply and said, you raised money for the film and, and live off that. What was the time period over which your father's behavior started to change before you decided to make this film? Well, I started making documentaries in the early 90s. And his behavior was changing. And I think every once in a while, I would think this would be a, a good documentary. But it wasn't until the 2000s or close to 2000, like, let's say maybe like late 90s, when I started thinking one day I should really make a film about this. His behavior got so crazy. So your response was partly out of concern for him and how he was changing, but also response, a self-protective response, because you were being assaulted, essentially, by the deluge of emails that he was sending you. 
Yes. It was like vicarious attacks. <laughs> and his temper. He, he would get really, really, really angry and, you know, get in yelling matches with my mother or with me. At one time, he almost even disowned me because I had, I went on a dating site. And after I discovered, like, you know, I got all this information about Republicans, like, I'm thinking this is what they're like. I put, no Republicans, please. And I told my mother that. She told my father. Next thing I know, I have this rip-roaring, angry message on my machine, my answering machine. Jennifer, don't ever ask me for any help ever, ever again. Ah, if you can't abide by my beliefs, he just was sputtering and hung up. Wow. So what was it like emotionally to have lived through that 10-year-plus period of his gradual kind of absorption into that milieu, both on you as well as on your immediate family? I know with my immediate, I know that I didn't like the signs right away, and I just thought, uh-oh, I hope he doesn't get too far in, carried away with this or into this, and you know, my mother kind of brushed it off at first. But then as it got more and more, as he got more and more obsessive and more fanatical and more radical, it was very disturbing. And my older brother even said it felt like the family was just coming apart at the seams. I mean, because that's all that he was about. And it was very, 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 it was depressing frankly, and I had a lot of anxiety. And my mother at one point, I think she was in her 80s, said, emailed me and said, I got to move out. (laughs) You know, like in her 80s. And it was distressing to the whole family, even relatives. When I first watched the film, I had a sort of political perspective on it and understanding tactics as just being like right-wing tactics in general with a little bit of layering of, of media tactics, uh, media communication tactics. But then mm-hmm. since, since then, I, I've become more informed about domestic violence and coercive control, which in various interviews that I've had, um, in particular one recently, I had an interview with a journalist from Australia who wrote a great book called See What You Made Me Do. And in it, she details the chart of coercion by this psychologist named Albert Biederman, who studied Mm -hmm. prisoners of war in Korea. Mm -hmm. And the chart of coercion has these set of tactics that Mm -hmm. mirror the right-wing disinformation tactics that you talk about in your film. Yeah. And so I see these tactics now as being kind of part of a toolkit of oppression, basically. And I'm wondering what your understanding of these tactics are now that you've been four years past the film, like as you've grown as an individual and as an activist, are there any similarities to these tactics that you've seen in other areas of society and um, in your life? To me, when I would listen to like Rush Limbaugh, you'd hear him, To me, he sounded like a used car salesman. Like I pictured him like in a big plaid suit, 
fat chomping on a cigar. It did turn out that two of those things were true and accurate. And I just started paying more attention to how these people operated. And maybe because I was made fun of when I was, I mean, I was really bullied when I was younger. I was especially sensitive to like manipulation. These tactics seemed obvious to me and it was shocking to me that some people couldn't see through them. Um, You know, just like with, with Trump, it's amazing people can't see that he is like a, a, a fraud and a con man and like a snake oil salesman. Yeah, I mean, when I talked to um, Dr. Taylor from England, who's an expert on brainwashing, she talked about basically the two different types of brainwashing. One was coercion, and then the other one was... Stealth. Yes. Let me just read some of the elements of the chart of coercion for you. Hmm. There's eight different tactics. And again, these are what's used in prisoners of war, but they also mirror exactly what abusers do in a domestic violence relationship that's coercively controlling. So the first is isolation. The second is monopolization of perception. The third is induced disability or exhaustion. The fourth is enforcement of trivial demands. Fifth is demonstration of omnipotence. Sixth is alternation of punishment and reward. Seven, cultivation of anxiety and despair. And eight, degradation. When I heard you speak about you feeling like just this deluge of emails and feeling anxiety and and all of that, and then in the film, you talk about your father's sort of initial onset of being vulnerable and starting to listen to right-wing media, it makes me wonder what are the levels of vulnerability that we each have to being manipulated and coerced in these ways? And is there some way that we can defend against it? And so for the chart of coercion, a lot of women who are survivors that have talked about their stories, their levels of vulnerability have always been about their status in society as a woman. Like maybe they were divorced and they had children or they had a disability or whatever it was, they were susceptible to the abuser degrading them and then them internalizing it and then being able to accept the other tactics. So I'm wondering if there's anything in your father that made him, you know, in his makeup and his history and his childhood that made him more vulnerable to being manipulated versus you. You experienced, you said, bully, being bullied, and so you had some awareness. Well, for one thing, he was a straight white aging male. And so a lot of these, like the hate radio guys like Rush Limbaugh and Roger Ailes, when he was developing Fox News, understood that there was this untapped, this insecurity that they had. Because like in the 60s, things were changing. You know, there was civil rights, there was women's rights, anti-war. There was all of this social change. And what they had had for hundreds of thousands of years you know, was in this hierarchy, they had 
dominance and they had a place and they had a role in society. And this was all changing. And here's a generalization for me. I think men are maybe less likely to be in touch with their feelings and to understand what they're feeling. So maybe before they can do that, you have these right-wing manipulators tapping into that and saying, you have a right to be angry at all of this change going on. Women really aren't equals. Neither are minorities. And immigrants are taking your jobs. And the poor are to blame. And so is welfare. And so they were taken advantage of that way. And so that's that's one thing, like that insecurity was tapped into. Just think about it. Like you have this identity and all of a sudden, really, you're being asked to change it. Like, well, who am I and what do I become and what's my worth and what's my value? Is that something your father ever articulated directly? Like, did he give you hints that his sense of identity or his sense his identity as man was being under threat? It came out in other ways. It was very interesting because he would like, say I was there at the house and my mom was there. Maybe uh, a couple aunts were there. He'd come in and he'd say, what are you girls cooking up? And I would say, women, <laughs> we're not girls, we're women. Do we call you, you know, boys? And he'd get angry about that. And there's one picture in the film, which is actually true. My dad's sitting there with a fork and knife, and he started wanting to be waited on by my mother. And this was, this was after he retired. She didn't need to wait on him. She never waited on him before. Was that something that he was influenced by his peers? Were there other men that were waited on in their lives? And then they gave him the idea like, hey, how come you're not? It was Rush Limbaugh, completely. Completely uh, telling him, like, um, Rush Limbaugh is a misogynist. So um, he was calling feminists feminazis. You know, he was saying, now they want to be called women. What's wrong with calling them girls? You don't have to change. So my father would just fill his head with all of this stuff. And then he did find a friend who was also a Rush Limbaugh fan. And they were like a couple of schoolgirls with a crush. They would meet at McDonald's in the morning before they went to the Y and discuss what Rush had said the night before. I mean, Rush Limbaugh was their Bible. He was their hero. He spoke for them. And Rush told them that he spoke for them. He would even say to them before he signed off on a, front, a Friday, okay, now don't think about anything until Monday. And I'll come back and I'll tell you how to think about it. We'll discuss it. I did not know that. That sounds horrifying. It's creepy. You mentioned in the film, you you made the comparison to Rush Limbaugh and Fox and right-wing media in general, radio in particular, as having kind of a religious quality on its listeners. Yes. Was your father religious? Was he a religious man before? No, we just grew up Catholic. He sang in the choir. You know, he was a really good guy. He was not particularly religious. He did believe in being 
treating everybody equally. And I had black friends and he never, I never heard him say any, anything that, you know, use any racial epithets or anything like that. I mean, if anything, he made fun of himself, like calling himself a Polak or, you know, his brothers or sisters, whatever, but nothing ever racially. So he wasn't particularly religious. And even later, he began to say, I don't know if I believe in God. So this kind of became his new religion in a way. What's also kind of hypocritical and interesting about it is that he started, once you sign up for some of this stuff and you get on lists, you get on every list. So he would get on this Christian rights kind of list, you know, where they were convincing him that liberals wanted to take in God we trust off of the penny. And he just thought that was terrible. And like, I, I, I live in New York City. I never heard anybody say, you, you know, maybe there was like one small group, like eight people in the United States that thought we should take in God we trust. They just said that about all. So anyway, he, he did become, almost, this was like his religion. What was your dad's educational background and his profession before he retired? Okay, so this is the thing. My father grew up during the Depression. He never missed a day of school. He even won an award for perfect attendance when he graduated high school because it was, it was warm and he liked education. Um, then he signed up to go off to World War II because all his buddies were going. He had been working in a factory making, making stuff for the war. But he's like, everybody wanted to kick the Germans' ass, you know. So he joined up in the war, and that provided him with an opportunity uh, with the GI Bill to get an education. And he has this kind of obsessive mind, apparently, obviously. <laughs> so he applied himself to, he was very good in math, so he applied himself. He got his master's degree in engineering. So he became an electronics engineer working for the government. And it's all irony because later in life, he thought that the government should have a very, very minimal role. Sided with Newt Gingrich, yes, drown it, you know, reduce it till it's the size it can be drowned in a bathtub, whatever. And didn't believe in the Department of Education, didn't believe in the Department of Energy, the list went on and on. It was all the, the libertarians, the original David Koch libertarian list of like no government for libraries or anything like that. And he also became anti-education, anti-college. And he had put all of us through college. He scrimped and saved like nobody's business. I used to think we were poor. He was just squirreling it away so he could put us all through college. So, you know, that's part of the turnaround. It was just remarkable. That anti-education perspective came only when he found right-wing media, right? Yes, because they kept telling him that um, when your kids go off to college, that um, college teaches them to be liberals. When I hear these stories, you know, because I, I know many survivors like myself, we struggle with similar issues with our children being exposed to or potentially living with and growing up with abusive parents, usually the father in, in our lives. And so there's this level of brainwashing, basically, where there's a hatred of 
the mother or misogyny that's either directly or indirectly inculcated. And I'm always wondering, is there some sort of shield that we can help empower our children with so that they're less susceptible to manipulation and coercion? Is there? I mean, just very simply, media literacy should be taught in school. There's a lot of things that should be taught in school that are, you know, just basically so you can get through life. Even if if you don't teach it in school, and that could take years, when you're sitting with your kids watching television, you could you could point out about how advertising is manipulative. Laugh at it. Get them involved and say, okay, so um, how is this advertisement trying to influence you? Or how are they speaking? I, I, I mean, I'm just thinking of this right now off the cuff, so it's not fully articulated, obviously. My niece, I, I just, I... I talk to her like she's a grown-up. Well, she almost is now. She graduated high school. But I would talk to her about media manipulation and how basically you can draw a parallel between how, like, the news used to be presented, okay, like in the days of Walter Cronkite and then now with all this emotionalism and, you know, balance and fairness and balance, it's it's... I just think like, you know, if we think along those lines, there ought to be some answers. But teaching media literacy and how kids can interpret what they see. So I'm glad you brought up the term fair and balanced because in the film, you spend a great deal of time interviewing various people about the origin of that phrase, which is very deliberate, coined by Fox to position conservative content or propaganda, I should say, as being fair and balanced. Can you talk more about that tactic that they had and then share some of the insights that some of the guests that you interviewed offered? After Goldwater lost to Johnson in 1964, the right was declared dead. Nobody wanted to be seen as a conservative. Everybody was liberal and it was, you know, all that social change was going on. I mean, that happened after 64. But the right decided, you know, we have to come back somehow. And how do we do it? Okay, well, if we tell the truth, we're not going to get people to vote for us. So we have to first paint the media as liberal. Then we have to, and we have to bang those drums, the media is liberal, the media is liberal, the media is liberal, which it's not because it's run by corporations, a handful. And then we have to start talking about balance, fair and balanced. So it changed. The approach to journalism changed uh, from objectivity, like where you're discerning the truth, to fair and balanced. And so, I mean, you still have people today saying, well, don't you want something fair and balanced? You know, news like that. I'm like, no, I don't. I don't want two sides. I want the truth. And if the truth hurts at some point or it's not what you want to hear, so be it. I mean, as much as you can discern the truth, of course, you're going to have some shading and coloring here and there. But it was much better in the days of Walter Cronkite. I mean, as a kid, my parents watched it every night. I was so bored. (laughs) And that's how it should be. It should be boring. 
One of the examples that was given in the film about how this tactic basically weaponized against non-propaganda news sources is the climate crisis and how climate crisis is acknowledged by 99% of scientists across the globe to be man-made and urgent. And yet, uh, even though there's 1% dissent, the coverage is giving equal time to both sides. Right. And the purpose of that is to create doubt, which is a tactic, a well-used tactic. If they give them equal time, then that makes it seems like there's an equal measure, and there's not. And, you know, the tobacco company came up with this idea back in the 20s when they wanted to try and get women to smoke. How do we convince women to smoke outside? Maybe they would smoke inside. Well, Bernays came up with this. He's called the father of advertising. Well, let's start calling cigarettes torches of freedom. And let's create doubt about uh, smoke inhalation and that it's, that it's, it's actually not unhealthy. So you have advertisements with doctors saying, my brand is blah, 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 blah. So that create, just creating enough doubt can like put a fissure in an idea. And one of my, my brothers, my younger brother, I remember arguing with him. He's saying, oh, they're not sure about climate science. You know, they're not sure about climate change. Finally, Al Gore's movie came out and I got the DVD and I brought it over to my mother's house and then gave it to my younger brother, and he watched it. After that, he changed. He said, yeah, it uh, seems pretty real. But my father, he was there. He watched the movie, and it, Rush Limbaugh was talking against Al Gore. I saw my dad watching the movie by himself in the living room. I crouched down, and I thought, what's he thinking? Is he bringing, is absorbing it in? He had this scowl on his face. And the next day, we had relatives come, and we got in the car, and we drove down to the boardwalk. And on the way back, I forget how it came up, but I remember him just bellowing from the back seat, Al Gore is an asshole. Um, Al Gore is an asshole. So I just, by then, the information, the neuroscience, it, it couldn't enter the brain because it was just that would present cognitive dissonance. It would present too much uncomfortable feelings. It just, instead, it made him angrier. So, so doubt is one of the, I think you named nine tactics in your film, but it, it's part of a set of tactics that I think on the d- domestic violence side is called gaslighting, right? So yes. you, you mentioned doubt. Tactic one is to lie and skew, to distort. Two is doubt and create confusion. Three is blame and divide. So that happens a lot in domestic violence relationships where they're pathologized for their reaction. Tactic four is brand and label. Tactic five is use language and framing that's not neutral. So Frank Luntz, you talked about with the cigarettes. Tactic six is fear mongering and use of emotion. Seven is bullying and shaming. Eight is being in your face and being ubiquitous in your messaging. And then finally, nine is using nonverbal manipulation. One is accuse them first, which is like the pot calling the kettle sooty, if you will. (laughs) 
And then the other one is writing history. His, his, I call it history, not. Um, but accusing them first, that is a tactic that Goebbels knew well. So, and if you notice, like, Trump will do it all the time. He'll, he'll say, oh, the Democrats are um, causing a coup. And meanwhile, he's got a coup going right on in the Oval Office there. But that's another tactic, accuse them first. They're very good. Those two are also abuser tactics. Yeah. Because we have very often now, there's now almost, I don't know if I would call it an epidemic, but especially during COVID, there have been a lot of survivors that I know who've been reporting and the work that they do in advocates that abusers in the home, as tensions arise, if they were to strike first physically against a woman, they'll like hit themselves or something and then call the police, right? So that they can kind of avert any kind of arrest or negative response towards them and confuse the situation. And then similarly, rewriting history, like by just doing that, you're being revisionist, obviously. And and by retelling that lie, you are constantly rewriting history. Yeah, right. Yeah. After Trump was elected in 2016, I wrote a piece about how we are all now victims of domestic violence. We all know what an abusive relationship is, even if we never had it in our personal lives, because we were experiencing it every day. I thought that there would be some level of awareness and action, activation by people, because if they weren't in abusive relationships in their personal lives and they were experiencing this, they maybe didn't have that historical trauma that survivors have from many, many years of this experience, and they could take action and do something about it. And I don't feel like that's actually happened. I don't feel like there's a collective awakening. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that. I think that everybody's too scared to say something like all of the the newspapers should just, if they band together, they are going to be less likely to be bullied and he won't know where it's coming from. But if they all got together and demanded like Trump resign, coming from a place of strength like that, that would be pretty strong. But instead he just picks off one or two at a time. One thing I observed that was very interesting um, was this couple years ago, this footage of some people in, I don't know, I think it was the Netherlands. But anyway, there were journalists there, and they were asking the uh, Trump-American ambassador a question, and he wouldn't answer. So he went to the next journalist. The next journalist asked the same question. Then he went to the next journalist, and then that person asked the same question, and so on, until five of them did that. And then he finally had to answer. So that's what we need. We need people to stick together. And we need to stand up to him and to right-wing media. And for far too long, people have been afraid to do that because they are bullies. So there's, so you're saying that there's a, a level of fear from basically being, it's basically being in an abusive relationship, kind of like survivors. But survivors, I think there's two tipping points for survivors. Like it's just so bad that you have to leave. You can't endure anymore. Or there's or some combination of like an awakening, like this is bad, I don't deserve this, and some awareness that this behavior is not okay. Yeah. 
I think that in terms of go going back to your dad in the film, he had an intervention essentially through your mom that led him to eventually be kind of deprogrammed or freed, freed, yeah. right? Freed from that mental imprisonment. Yeah. But if he didn't, what other options would you have used to try to work with him? Uh, first, I'll, I'll say this is where I would mention my colleague's book, uh, Stephen Hassan, who is a, an actual cult deprogrammer. And he has this book called The Cult of Trump. It's very good. I mean, he looks at it from a cult point of view, and he talks about deprogramming. Another set of colleagues of mine uh, from Hear Yourself Think, I don't know if they're operating as much anymore, but they used to do web sessions in how to talk to your loved one, use Socratic questioning and get them to question their own belief. And it's really quite remarkable on, on their website. They have some videos that actually show them entering lion's den, like crowds coming out of like, get, you know, run back or whatever, doing this with some of the followers. Very effective. You're saying that that works, like using Socratic questioning to destabilize the framework upon which their ideology is built? I mean, with my mom, it, the deprogramming didn't happen overnight. It happened over a long period of time. It happened over a couple of years. And it's not easy. And I don't think it's always possible. If you can handle it, it's worth a try. Sometimes people can't handle it. If you watch the way Dave Neinhauser does it on the Hear Yourself Think website, you get an idea, like, oh, that's how you do it. He has no temper, no judgment. He's just listening, acknowledging, like, what they're saying, like, uh-huh, I hear you, and then questioning them, like, well, what if blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, at one point he says, well, wouldn't it be great if we had news like back in the day, Walter Cronkite, would, you know, wouldn't that be great? And they're like, yeah, yeah. You mentioned that your father's transition back took several years. During that time, initially, did your mom or you or anybody in the family, did you get clues that he was coming back to you? No. <laughs> so it was not, so it wasn't like oh there's one clue like oh he's being willing to listen to whatever and that clue kind of gave you the motivation to continue to to work with him. Yes, one time it was uh, after a recession and I was out of work and I had to find health care on my own and all the health insurance that I could afford just sucked. It was horrible, horrible. And I remember complaining to him from my own personal experience, from my point of view, like as a daughter, I could see he was sympathetic. And he said something like, that shouldn't be. There should be universal health care or something like that. And I was like, whoa, what just happened here? I guess that would be the only hint. But really, it didn't start until he lost that radio. The radio broke in the movie. And that was taken away, that source of hate. The source of indoctrination. Yes. Dave Neinhauser does mention in the movie that, you know, you take out like one block, just show 
one falsehood, or maybe it was Aaron, and then the whole is can break. People don't like being deceived. He says, when you deprogram, it helps the entire artifice crumble when there's one inconsistency. Who's the person that you interviewed who's, who talked about, maybe I don't have his name, listening to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me? I, I just forget it at the moment. But yeah, he, he was great. He was just one of the Skype interviews. Like when I did the movie, all these people somehow heard about it, like word of mouth, it got out. And people who had these stories reached out to me. And I was like, hmm, wouldn't it be great if I had your stories on video? Well, how do I film them? I can't travel across all across the country. I can't afford that. I know, I'll do it on Skype. That was, you know, years, years ago. So he basically talked about how he would, was listening to Fox and then all of a sudden he had time that day and was turning the channel and found, wait, wait, don't tell me because of its humor and then started listening to public radio. But getting back to your dad, I'm sure you've given him opportunities during that time when he was exposed to Fox and Limbo to, to listen to NPR and to listen to all their other shows and reporting and, and he just rejected them, I'm guessing. Once he found something he liked, he just, he just went with that. And you know what? I remember trying to get NPR in New Jersey at that time. That I had problems getting it. So these guys, they just came in like loud and clear. Yeah, and you mentioned that in the film that like, it was it like 97% of radio is conservative radio. So talk radio, yeah. So it's, they have a monopoly on the technology and the ears because of that. What are your thoughts with regard to as we approach the election and all of these disinformation tactics that are being used to confuse people further around issues like race and gender and politicizing those issues with regard to candidates? What can we do as citizens to be better informed and to protect ourselves from that those assaults of disinformation? Well, I think we have to support trustworthy, independent media. Don't get all your news from just one source. For instance, like MSNBC and CNN, they're, they're entertaining. I watch MSNBC myself, too, and it's got some good journalism. But it's not necessarily news. A lot of it's talk. A lot of it's opinion. I haven't agreed with a lot of the opinion, but it's still corporate media. And so what they're going to report is going to be within a narrow frame. Okay. They're not going to go outside that parameter because they answer to the advertisers. So what I do is I have a variety of independent sources, independent media. Yeah, they bug you for money, you know, but it's worth it. You know, it's truly independent voices because NPR isn't even totally independent anymore. I mean, you, you're not going to hear them talk about fracking because they've got Coke money. So I think that that's a good way to arm ourselves. But I also think that we have to reach out to our officials and candidates and who's ever in office and to address this cancer, this virus of right-wing media. It's an epidemic. 
it's just as bad <laughs> as the coronavirus. I'm sorry, but it is. I mean, people are dead because of people like Hannity, Tucker Carlson, Lord Ingraham, and Trump himself from downplaying a virus. So we have to encourage our officials to, to address it. They're all afraid to because they'll get attacked. But again, there's strength in numbers. And so if they band together, they can have some effect. And yes, it'll be hard to legislate until we get a Democratic Senate, but they can speak out and they can call, they can try to shame and stigmatize Fox and right-wing media. So I would say those two, those two things are very important. Tying those two together, then how important is a free press to a democracy? Essential, absolutely essential. I mean, you don't have a democracy with a free press. And I would even argue that we don't have a democracy now. It's, you could easily argue, I'm not, I'm not qualified enough to, but that it's an oligarchy because it's run by and for billionaires. So yeah, free press is necessary. We have to support our independent media. And we have to demand more of the media we do watch. For instance, like if I do see somebody on MSNBC when I'm kicking back, whatever, and they say something like conservative media, I'll tweet at them and I'll say, excuse me, do not give them the courtesy or the dignity of calling them conservative media. They're not conservative. They're radical. They're right-wing media. And I've gotten some responses. You know, you just, you just do it. You have to do it like right away. You get responses. Or even calling them media at all versus propaganda. Yeah. Not giving them any credibility as news sources. Yeah. That's, well, yeah, that's why it's, it's, those things are to me like opinion and talk, you know, political talk. And then sometimes it's um, engaging, but it's, it's not where you should get your news. Do you feel like there's any kind of legislation that might be beneficial to helping to enforce and create a culture of accountability in the news? Two things that I'll mention, because um, I don't want to get into the weeds too much, and I'm not really that qualified. But I do think that if we bring back a form of the fairness doctrine, that that could help talk radio. Now, there's pros and there's cons, you know, but that's another chapter. Then the other thing that we really must do is Bill Clinton in 99, no, 96, signed into law the Telecommunications Act. And what it did was it opened up media to be bought by a handful of people like Rupert Murdoch or, you know, Sinclair um, or these extreme companies. You cannot have a free press if you have a handful of companies, big corporations that are really dictating to you what they think you should hear and putting their spin on it. So a Telecommunications Act recovery, you know, a real reform act is absolutely something we should press for. Trump loosened a lot of the antitrust laws and is just so out of control. And also radio stations, they should be owned by local people. You know, what if you have a fire in your neighborhood 
you got to figure out who to call and they're across the, the country, you know, you got to be able to have a connection with your community. Things like that can be done. Well, we've come to the point of the conversation where we ask every guest a series of questions I call the engendered questionnaire. The first question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Women's lives. Women's lives and their children's lives because they would get destroyed as well. That's basically it. Women's lives and their children's lives and their communities. What gives you hope? That there are some good people in the world and that there are some fighters. And I think that one thing that I have hope about is that more and more people are recognizing that right-wing media has been really deleterious and has caused misogyny and more racism. And that gives me hope because more people seem to recognize that now and are speaking up about it more. And final question, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? I'm not really um, an expert in that area, but I think some of the things that you said earlier when we were speaking were good ideas. Another thing we can do, I just thought of is, again, teach kids in school. Schools, like women are equals, and then have examples. Let's get more women in in Congress and let's get a woman president and teach men to respect women. And I think that this should be taught in school. I'm going to make a suggestion. Everyone should watch your film because we didn't delve too much into the the content of your film, but I want to leave it so that people are encouraged to watch your film. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jen, for taking the time to speak with us. You're so welcome. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.